heroes, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Heroes, I have a very special announcement to start the show. Some of you may already have heard, I'm going to wizard school. New World Magiscola is the American adaptation of the College of Wizardry LARP you may remember from my first episode with Jason Morningstar. It's a four-day, fully immersive, bring-your-own-wand live-action experience, and the fine folks at Bully Pulpit Games have decided to sponsor my attendance. Bully Pulpit, if you don't know, publishes some of my favorite games, including Fiasco and, most recently, The Warren, so check them out. Huge thanks to them for their generosity. Uh, I'll be there on the fourth weekend, July 28th to 31st, in Richmond, Virginia. So if any of you heroes are going to be there, hey, what's up? Say hi. One more announcement. I will be at the Living Games Conference. You may recall from our last episode with Sarah Lynn Bowman. I'll be on a panel about LARP in the media that, if you like this show, you will probably find very interesting. Living Games is being held in Austin, Texas from May 19th to the 22nd. So if you're going or... If you have recommendations about cool stuff to do in Austin, give me a shout. All right, today's episode is with designer and artist Sarah Richardson. You may have seen her work in a slew of games from Lamentations of the Flame Princess to Apillion and much, much more. Her upcoming game, Bluebeard's Bride, which she's co-designing with Marissa Kelly and Whitney Beltran, is one of the most refreshing and innovative takes on the Apocalypse World engine I've ever played. Sarah and I had a lovely conversation about the old school renaissance in tabletop gaming, uh, being a freelancer in this wacky industry, and monster genitalia. So put the kids to bed and enjoy the show. So you you have done uh, design work and and artwork and layout and probably some other things I was not able to dig up on a huge like variety of games. You worked on Witch and Epillion recently and um, have done like a lot of freelancing. I must ask, how do you get your fingers in so many pies? <laughs> that That's an excellent question. Um, well, I kind of started out primarily doing freelance for OSR projects. And then I, I guess I kind of got lucky and started working on a broader variety of projects, primarily through meeting people either at conventions or online and finding, you know, either they see my work and they like it, or we start talking and we've got a good vibe together. And it's like, oh, I see you do this thing. Will you do this thing with me? Yeah. Conventions are really like kind of essential to working in, to operating in the community and the, you know, quote unquote, the industry. Like the more that I go and the more that I connect with people, the more I realize that that's true. But you mentioned connecting with people online as well, which is really neat. Like, is that primarily on Google plus or on forums or Twitter? I would say it's mainly G+. Um, I have met a lot of really awesome people through G+. I, I do have to say, though, Twitter has has also been my friend. Um, kind of the joke is my original form of networking was getting drunk and getting on Twitter. And then you end up in situations where you're like, hey, Ken Height, let's make chili. And he's like, yes. And I'm like, oh, wait, what did I just do? <laughs> and the next thing you know, you're over at Ken Height's house meeting his very lovely wife and eating chili together and, and talking about Cthulhu. It's so I, I might recommend that for some people if that's your speed. <laughs> Different strokes. But yeah, Twitter is magic. I, tr I truly believe that it leads to some really unique interactions. You know, I, I heard you on uh, the IGDN podcast a while back talking about being a freelancer in the industry. And, you know, among like get your face out there and be active on social media and network, you also recommended that 
you try your best to be yourself while you're doing that or that like that's your approach. Why do you feel that that is so important? I like that question a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. I advocate for that because among many other things, people should know what you're getting into. Whenever you're doing a freelance project for someone, sometimes it will stretch on for months or longer. If it comes to find out that you're not compatible with the people you're working with, you you can grit your teeth and you can hang on, you can make it work, but it is more work. It also, like me being honest about myself and the kind of things that I'm into, helps as well uh, filter out projects that I may not want to work on. Like uh, very early on in my my freelancing, I worked with this very lovely couple on developing puzzles for children. It was not my thing. Right. I love the look you're giving me. <laughs> I just, I've seen your illustration work. That's all. <laughs> yes. Um, so this was before I got established. It's right after I graduated. Whenever I was like, I will take any job anyone gives me. Mm-hmm. And I loved working with them and it was very valuable relationship. But now that I have been doing freelancing for a while, I wouldn't take that same job. And I, I want people to not be surprised and be like, hey, would you help us with this children puzzle? And I'm like... Actually, I'm drawing a monster with like many tentacles and many different sets of genitals. And I'd rather do that. And that's nice. And it's also nice to be at the point where, you know, you have enough context that you can say for sure what is going to interest you and what is going to just like, you know, and I think that's very courteous to your clients to say like, I'll work with you on this, but you it's not gonna be what you want. (laughs) It's not gonna be (laughs) ideal. There's definitely someone out there better suited to this, you know, particular work. That's really cool. Um, so you mentioned that um, you've done a lot of work with OSR games. And I was wondering, what does OSR mean to you? Oh, that that is like one of those terrible invitations that, that sits there looking all okay. And then you, you poke it a little and you're like, oh, there's something, a terrible fight in there. Kind, kind of like a lot of OSR dungeons, actually. <laughs> yes. Yes, actually. Uh, so OSR, old school renaissance, is uh, has been this kind of cool do-it-yourself uh, movement among gamers that kind of harkens back to older D&D and dungeon crawls and, you know, we are just here to kill some goblins. So it's it's very... Not the opposite of story games, I would argue, which is when when the the fight begins, Mm. but running in a different parallel course. It's a different kind of story that you're telling, and you have different goals, and you're doing different things. The OSR games that I've worked for also tend to include a little bit more horror elements, uh, which is something that I really like in my gaming. Mm -hmm. Is it like a simplification movement in some ways to sort of distill gaming? Yes, in that distilled, in that you're making something like super more concentrated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you take D&D and you boil it down to what it's really about and you start throwing in some, you know, some other aspects, you will come out with stuff like Lamentations of the Flame Princess. So in some ways it is, but I wouldn't say that I wouldn't, I wouldn't mistake it for saying that the rules are simple. It's a lot more about like trying to... I don't know, more of a a fan base creating like lots of really outrageous ideas uh, and kind of letting your imagination go a little wild. That's really neat. Um, You know, I think when I first encountered OSR, I thought it was just just like a backwards kind of nostalgic looking thing that was like, let's go play those old games, which to me is like, but there's so many new games. We can move forward. We could try new things. And that's what I'm realizing the more that I look into it. 
is that it really is about creating new things. It's about looking back at these experiences and saying, oh, that was about 90% good. I bet if I make my own system, it could be 100% good. Exactly. And whenever you have people like um, Scrap Princess and Patrick Stewart making these like really avant-garde things like Fire on the Velvet Horizon, I mean, I pick up that book and read it and I get so excited because visually it's like nothing I've seen before in the gaming industry. It's just this kind of odd zine uh, aesthetic. And then the ideas behind it is just like, where did you come up with that? I want more. So I think there are definitely like these fringes and edges of the OSR where they're doing just these, this really exciting stuff that isn't just looking backwards. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly exciting. That's really cool. In terms of design sensibility, it seems like it's also a, a different style of play and a different style of GMing. You know, I, I saw you on AD Plus Spotlight um, GMing a game of Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Um, and, you, and you worked on Lamentations. Is that right? Yeah, I do freelance projects for them. It's probably the most well-known OSR game. And, you know, very, at the very, very outset when you were running it, I think the quote was, you tell me what you want to do and I'll tell you how to do it. Does that kind of sum up the, the GMing style or is that just a, a caveat? Mark Diaz Truman and I keep having this argument where his argument is that I run OSR games like they're Apocalypse World. <laughs> <laughs> and and he might be right. He might be right. However, so I uh, have gone to a lot of more old school conventions and I've gotten to play with like a lot of the original designers like Frank Mincer and Jim Ward and people like that. And there is a difference in how like the old guard, the original creators of D&D, how they run a game and how like, you know, someone runs Fiasco or something like there are many different styles and techniques, obviously. Whenever I've played Lamentations with other people, and I've probably run it more than I've played it, that statement you're quoting, that's just me. I'm going to do that no matter what game I'm playing. It, the difference is teaching a game. Like, I'm not going to say that to, you know, my experienced players that I, I just ran Lamentations for at, at a home game. I didn't say that uh, necessarily, even though the the feeling was still there. So I think that's actually, so yeah, that's, that's like a topic that I, I'm still working through and arguing about <laughs> and discussing. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, one thing to keep in mind too is, although I've been playing for a long time, I've only actually been running games for like three years now, three or four years. Interesting. I want to follow up on that thread. Um, I mean, we could talk about OSR and story games for, you know, the full hour, but I want to follow up on that thread because I think that's uh, very, very common for a lot of women gamers to, you know, love the hobby, enjoy the hobby, enjoy the hell out of it and contribute to it in all kinds of interesting ways. But GMing specifically is, I don't know if it's intimidating or just unappealing or if they're discouraged in subtle ways that we don't recognize. I mean, a lot of your work with Contessa was about this push for more women GMs. What's your kind of strategy there? I mean, what's your approach to that particular issue? Well, I can definitely only speak for uh, myself at this point. So whenever I started gaming and I was, I started gaming with more traditional, uh, like I, I started out with AD&D cool. and then I went to Shadowrun and, and Earthdawn and stuff like that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I have a terrible story about dressing up as a Decker that I may not relate. Um, <laughs> so the, the point was I was playing these games and whenever I played, it was never presented to me as an option to run the game. Mm -hmm. It was, especially whenever I was younger and even whenever I was doing, uh, whenever I was playing at games at public conventions, it was always men who were running 
And there always was a sense of you have to know the game inside and out. You have to know every trivia bit, every errata, mm-hmm. everything in order to run a game. And if you can't, if you don't know all that, then you're not going to be a good GM. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't play with my, uh, I didn't play with a female GM until I was in my like mid twenties. And then it was the first time I was like, wait, what? Yeah. You're going to run the game. Awesome. It was me and her and a bunch of guys. And we had a great time, you know? So I know with more traditional games, there's a definite sense that you have to be an expert in order to run the game. And that turned me off. I I was afraid that I would mess something up and then the whole game would be doomed. No one would want to play it again. I would ruin everything. (laughs) (laughs) But now that I've started GMing, I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's the wrong way of looking at it. And hopefully other women are seeing that too, that this is more of a collaborative experience about telling a story. And that's what I really like. I love seeing the crazy ass shit my friends come up with whenever I put something in front of them. You know, it's it's kind of like having an editor. A group of people, their minds are usually going to be stronger than just one alone. So I think a lot of the women not GMing is a little bit based on, you know, we're intimidated, we're afraid that we're, we're going to ruin it if we don't know everything or if we don't do it exactly right. And I have completely fucked up GMing stuff before. (laughs) And yet everything was okay. Like in the end, like hopefully people had fun. You know, I have had bad experiences. So that's definitely part of it. Uh, The other part of it is just that uh, we don't have as visible a presence in the gaming world. Like you go to a convention and the majority of it is men. Just like you go to convention, the majority of it is white. Yeah. Yeah. So it's harder to see yourself doing something when you don't see other people who look like you doing it. You mentioned uh, having your first women GM and it being this kind of like light bulb moment. And I honestly had the exact same moment. The first time I went to a, a big gaming convention and saw a woman running a game, I think it was Kristen Firth running either Dread or probably Fiasco. And it was just like, but you what? Like, <laughs> no one's stopping her. This this is possible. This is doable. Amazing. That's right. And Kristen's fantastic, by the way. Yeah, she's a real sweetheart. So that's interesting. So I wonder if a big push is to just, you know, do we increase that kind of visibility? And is it up to us who are, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm super comfortable GMing, honestly, but I, I sometimes wonder if like I should be doing it just for the sake of, you know, maybe some other woman seeing me and having that their light bulb moment. I would have to say that you shouldn't do it if you don't enjoy it. You know, let me put that out there. It's okay if you don't want a GM. It's okay if you don't ever feel comfortable with it. Like, just like I would say to guys, like not every guy has to GM, not every woman has to GM. But I think that those of us who are comfortable GMing, it is incredibly valuable to see us out there doing it. You know, there's no getting around that. And since I seem to have misplaced my sense of like shame or guilt for saying things and being recorded while I'm, (laughs) you know, you mentioned you, you saw my Indie Plus game and I had to look at it recently for something and I happened to open it on the spot where I talk about someone banging their sister and I'm like, (laughs) well, I'm never running for office, but I already knew that. (laughs) Might as well dig that hole deeper. (laughs) That's right. Um, so so since I, I seem to have lost a little bit of that shame or fear, I figure I'll go do it as much as makes me happy and people want to play with me and as long as we're all happy. But I also think that we need to, to kind of support other women GMs and help them. So I know like Emily Kerr Boss and Tanya D, I don't know her full last name, 
like they put together that our mini games website. So, you know, there is something also kind of cool about running a game written by a woman. Like I've run uh, a couple of times now, I've run Palace of the Silver Princess, which is a first edition D&D adventure. And it was the first one ever written by a woman. Cool. And it's so sad because she never got to write another one. She kind of got screwed. I blame you, Errol Otis. I'm comfortable with that blame. Actually, Errol's a super cool guy. I, I got to work with him on another project and he is he is such a sweetheart and he was so encouraging and just a wonderful person. That's amazing. And yet I should not be surprised that the guy who draws like the creepiest, <laughs> grossest shit would be like sweet <laughs> and adorable. <laughs> he is. He really is. But I I do want to give him trouble for the Palace of Silver Princess because basically what happened is this woman, Jean, Jean Wells, she wrote the adventure and doesn't sound like she got a lot of support while she was writing Mm -hmm. it. And it was the first time she was doing it. She was actually like in a different department. But in those days at TSR, everybody kind of did everything. Yeah. But so Errol did the art for the adventure and he drew things making fun of the current management of TSR. Wow. Like he drew them as hermaphroditic monsters, which they kind of took offense at. And so the adventure got canceled oh. and like it got trashed. Right. And later they redid it. And now you can get a copy of Jean's version included with Errol's art on PDF. But, you know, it's so sad that she never wrote another adventure after that. Yeah, it would have been so discouraging. Totally. So uh, so I run that at conventions and I've changed it. I redrew the maps and I changed it so it's easier and, and closer to my style of running. But it's fun and cool to be able to tell people that they're playing the first D&D adventure written by a woman and they react to that and they like that. And she has put stuff in that adventure that was not normal for like modules at that time. So to ruin it a tiny bit for people. <laughs> Spoilers. There is literally a trap where if you you spring the trap, you get covered in glitter. <gasps> yes, you get glitter bombed. And then you track glitter all over the dungeon so all the monsters can find you easier. And you'll never get it off because glitter never goes away. It never goes away. So you just start tracking glitter everywhere. And it, the GM instructions are... It's easier for the monsters to find the players now. How cool is that? Uh, listeners cannot see my mouth hanging open. <laughs> just amazement and delight. I, I just want to like write that out and frame it and just point to it whenever we talk about like diversity in the industry and like how we need different perspectives because like I bet no one else at TSR at that time would have thought of fucking glitter bombing people. <laughs> The most beautiful and fabulous and devious torture. Right? Because it's at first you're like, oh, whatever, glitter. And then you're like, wait, stuff can track us. We're tracking <laughs> glitter all through the dungeon. They can find us. Fuck. Your stealth is, is gone. Yeah. Your stealth is over. It's like the combination of my favorite things. It's beautiful, yet deadly. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I think we, we I may have gotten off tangent, but... No, no, this is all extremely relevant. And that's really cool. And like, you know, I feel like that's kind of the best of the OSR sentiment is not to just like, look backwards for no reason, but to just like, let's take another look. Let's see what was back there that we didn't notice the first time. Because I think maybe, you know, there's, I think there might have been something really cool that we didn't see. Most definitely. And, and a little bit of the feeling that people who are playing OSR games are just kind of like wallowing in the past. I think that's pretty unfair. Because, yeah, there there's definitely bad things in the past, but being able to play with old school people, getting to read their stuff and see their designs and stuff, 
I take that and find that inspiring for my current work on story games. So, I mean, it's totally valuable. I can discard the stuff I don't like. And, and you can do that with the past wholesale when you are actually engaging with it. Like, it's one thing to go back and play a system that was made then. It's totally different to say, hey, you know, I kind of like this one piece of it. I'm just going to take that and then add these 10 different things to, to my system. It does have this kind of DIY feel that you mentioned at the start. Yeah. Actually, that's a little bit of tension for me as a freelance professional. Oh. Yeah. Because there's a feeling of anyone can do it. And it's like, yes, anyone can do it. It doesn't mean you can do it well. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's not what you want. Like, that's totally cool. Go make your, you know, badass, very DIY zine. And that's awesome. Just, you know... We have to acknowledge there's a difference between somebody making a zine in their basement, which I love and I've contributed to and I wholeheartedly support, and someone producing a professionally created book and game. Well, I think freelancers are often kind of called upon to, you know, prove the value of their labor, right? Or like defend the value of their labor, which is super frustrating and super annoying because, you know, work is work. And if you're going to do it, it should pay your bills and put some food in your mouth. And it's unbelievable how often freelancers have to like justify that. Yeah, I've definitely, I've gotten the most pushback on what I charge for layout. It's kind of nice because the gaming community actually values illustrators. So I don't have to justify how much I charge for illustration. People are like, yeah, that's cool. That's worth it. But layout, there is a feeling that anyone with Microsoft Word can just lay out a book and get it printed. And that kills my little black heart so much. I'm like, oh, you can, but it hurts. It hurts to look at. It's kind of painful. Like you want to encourage everyone to do things and try things. But yeah, I, I like your approach. That's like, but please recognize that that is different <laughs> than, you know, you know, really, really skilled labor. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to sit down with a bunch of professional layout people who work in RPGs, we will talk your head off about different software. We will get into fistfights over fonts. Maybe not fistfights, depends. And, you know, can spend the entire, like, night arguing over, like, the particular format this one book chose. We're, we are geeks like anyone else. We will geek out about it. That doesn't mean that the amateur layout isn't valid. It's just, it's doing different things. Most of the time, I no longer have to work with people who don't value my skills. So I am very lucky. I have some really great clients. Well, not just lucky. I mean, you've worked to a point to get there, right? And you, you know, are, are able to be selective because you put the work in. I'm going to make you uncomfortable with lots of compliments. I'm this so night. uncomfortable. <laughs> That's my secret interviewer power. I subdue you with my kind words. Um, you mentioned zines a little bit earlier. I want to jump on that. So you did the layout and some art and some other contributions for uh, the randomosity zine. I, how did that come together? How did that come to exist? Uh, well, that was uh, an offshoot of my relationship with Stacey Delorfano from Contessa. We thought that, you know, there are all these cool people making cool stuff. We should put together a zine. Um, so what you're seeing was the product of some incredibly talented individuals that we invited and or badgered into making stuff for us. And I don't know, that that was a really interesting adventure, I have to say. Interesting. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Well, it taught me a lot about like doing quick layout because it wasn't like a game where I was getting paid to do the layout. You know, it wasn't a professional job. I could do funny shit like um, Anna Madrian. I just mispronounced her last name. I'm so sorry, Anna. She had made this random drop table about all the romantic reactions NPCs could have to you mm -hmm. and stuff like that. 
so I, uh, I remembered some stuff I did in school. I took all of my lipstick and proceeded to use all of it and kiss a bunch of different pieces of paper. And then I scanned them. So <laughs> those lip prints on the page, those are mine. That's amazing. Maybe. I, I actually gave myself like terribly chapped lips by doing that. That's a lot of lipstick. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> that's awesome to be able to take those kinds of risks, right? I mean, that's, that is honestly like a cool sort of side benefit of hobby work or amateur work or DIY work or whatever you want to call it is that, you know, maybe no one's paying you. So maybe you can just kind of do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. Uh, like the monster I made for that, the, the corn bock. Oh yeah. Terrifying. Oh really? I think they're so cute. Like (laughs) I love them so much. I mean, yeah, there's a picture of one of them eating a human leg, but you know, whatever. But cutely. (laughs) Uh, I actually, I enjoyed drawing them more than I did writing about them, I think in some ways. Mm -hmm. Plus the amusing conversation with my partner where I asked him to come in. I'm like, what do you think this drawing? And he's like, I'm a little uncomfortable. I can see the monster's penis. I think you need to like push that back a little bit. And you're like, nailed it. <laughs> I actually ended up toning it down a little because it did kind of draw the eye a little too much. Yeah, you don't want that to be the focus necessarily. It should be more a nice surprise as you look <laughs> over the picture. You're like, oh, they're eating someone. Oh, there's a penis. <laughs> I'm sure there's some very like complex way to talk about that in terms of visual art and like points of focus and like how the eye moves through the picture. Yes. <laughs> it should it should the eye should rest briefly upon the dick. <laughs> We have a new tagline for my website. (laughs) (laughs) My design philosophy, well. (laughs) Yes, whenever I talk to clients now, my illustration philosophy is your your eyes should glance over the dick before realizing, Mm. yes, I can see that monster's junk. I mean, is it just me or do I like I find it weird when there are like pictures of monsters and demons and stuff and they don't have genitals? It's not just you. That bothers me so much that I was lucky enough to take part in Lillian Cohen Moore's Oral History of Gaming. And I believe I I talked at her about monster penises for like an hour. And she still talks to me. So I'm, I'm impressed by that. So we got to talk about the shit no one's talking about. It's a combination of two things, right? Like mm-hmm. there's our puritanical attitude towards nakedness. Yeah. And it's especially pronounced because it's male genitals. And so that's why in those same books... You know, the monster manuals, you will see the mermaid fully exposed breasts. It's all okay. It's female nipples. So we're fine. It's a little naughty. But yeah, then the demon, like, that's a demon. I'm pretty sure he has a penis. And I'm sure it's terrifying, right? Yeah. I mean, like, if you're trying to draw this frightening thing, or you're trying to draw this, like, you know, there's so many different ways you can go with that that involve monster dicks. Yes. And if you look up, like, animal penises, a lot of them are really fucked up and that is some great inspiration. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, also, like, even if you want to make an argument about, like, angels and demons and they're immortal so they don't need genitals, whatever, you can have that argument. But if it's, like, a, you know, like, animal species, if it's, like, a, especially, you know, like, satyrs and fawns and stuff, like, yeah. they got something going on. Like, you know, be real. Well, and, and the corn box that we just talked about, they are satyr-like in form. They just happen to be meat eaters. So yeah, it it always really bothered me both that there is this weird just like blankness there uh, in the illustrations and also that it's 
lopsided in that it's apparently okay to show women yeah, and to show them in very compromised positions, but men aren't sexualized in the same way. Mm-hmm. So one of the fun things I get to do, of course, is draw everybody in sexualized situations to try and make up for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I love that, right? Because that really is the annoyance of seeing this sort of like really cheesecakey fantasy art is this like, well, that's, you know, a sexy lady, I guess, but how come all these dudes don't look sexy? Like, it doesn't make any sense. What's going on in this world? Is this a sexy world you're illustrating or not? Exactly. And I know that has more to do with cultural influences and stuff. It's not something that's confined to gaming. Uh, And if you look at, you know, fine arts, there is this movement, kind of the joke that the only way for a woman to get into a museum is to be naked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The gorilla girls. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just gaming and it's, you know, it's wrapped up, like I said, in in kind of a puritanical and women's bodies are fascinating and we like to see them sexualized and naked and yet so uncomfortable to do that with men somehow. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Have you ever read Meg Baker's uh, 1001 Nights? I have not had a chance. I, I would desperately love to. It's worth it for the art. The art is amazing because it's like, Everybody is just sexy. I forget the name of the artist, but she's amazing. And everyone, you know, like every supernatural creature, every like regular person, everybody's just all sexy in that. And it just sets like such a nice tone in terms of like, uh, you know, the game is very much about like sensuality and focusing on the senses and like um, in so many ways. And so like, why wouldn't like kind of human sensuality be a part of that as well? Yeah, it's just really, really cool to see. It also speaks a little bit to the idea of like form meeting function. Mm. So back to your your example of an angel or a demon, a demon wouldn't have a penis necessarily for procreation. There might be another reason for it, just like an angel might have a different reason. You know, if you're dealing with a religion or a philosophy where sex is sacred, maybe an angel has genitals because it's about pleasure. Maybe we all have genitals for reasons other than well, yes, <laughs> other people, you know, like, I, but I think that's a statement you can make with your work, right? Yeah. And it's the same, like, so whenever you're, you're drawing people who are fighting, you, you come across the metal bikini argument, which I know everybody has an opinion on. But for me, a lot of it boils down to just practicality. Like if you're not, if you're not sending your dudes to fight in a metal cock piece or cod piece, then, then do not send your ladies out in metal bikinis and more dudes fighting just in loincloths. Cause that's hot. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> we can go either way with this, you know, we're flexible. It's yeah. Good. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, so to take things in an incredibly different direction, although everyone should go and read the randomosity issue on sex. It's so good. But the other zine that you worked on is the zine that we and a bunch of other people put together at Metatopia this past year. Yes. What In formulating this question, I've been trying to remember whose idea that was. And I can only assume it's yours because I have no recollection. See, I thought it was your idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, hey, I can help that happen. I don't remember. I know you wanted to do a thing about it. And I, I think it was just a beautiful meeting of ideas that ran in parallel. Yeah, the perfect, like, when you talk about, like, skills and non-skills and complementary skills and overlapping, it was a very, very good situation. So, yeah, we both wanted to do something around con crash, which is something that can happen. People also call it con drop. After uh, someone has a great time at a convention, they can go home and feel really, really down physically, mentally, emotionally um, for a, a couple of days. And I just wanted some way to, like, 
talk about this and for people to kind of share their experiences and strategies. Oh my God, you have a printed copy. <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm sorry. I do really cannot see, but it's, it's, it's a work of art. I mean, truly it's, it's beautiful to behold. Um, what was your kind of pull to work on that project? Was it the content or was it just the opportunity to make some kind of gaming zine or? For me, the idea behind it was uh, the most appealing thing was teaching people how to make a zine. So whenever I went to school, uh, I was lucky in that my program had a really robust book department. So to make like all of the people who are listening who can't see anything jealous, I'm going to show Alex something cool. This is my little box of books that I've made. Wow. Okay, listeners, I am looking at like a hand-bound collection of books Yeah. with all sorts of different spines and different techniques. And they have lovely little covers. Oh, I made the paper. Oh, god damn it. <laughs> well, it was so part of the bookbinding class was we made these example books of all the different kinds of binding techniques that we learned. So yeah, I was lucky. I got to go to a fancy school that showed us how to how to make little little books. Wow, they're cute. some of my favorite possessions. And I realized that not everyone had that opportunity. And although making a zine is really easy, if someone doesn't show you how to lay out the pages, it can seem totally intimidating. Like, how can I ever make this thing? So for me, a lot of it was just like I want to share with people that you can make this paper zine and it's this awesome thing and it's not that hard. Once again, you don't have to have professional skills to use it, to do it. It's just like knowledge and, and, and finding stuff. And then I was totally shocked and amazed at the contribution our participants made. I know. I know. It was, it was beautiful. Um, just so listeners know, we um, basically invited anyone who wanted to contribute to the zine to come together. We had a discussion and then we basically gave everyone a page and gave them some, you know, Sarah was there to provide feedback. Uh, we gave them some like materials and, you know, Sharpies and whatever. And everyone just kind of wrote kind of whatever they wanted, whether it was like an experience or a suggestion or advice or a philosophy or what they usually do to combat or prevent con crash. And, you know, there's, there's not a word repeated. There's not a sentiment repeated in it. Everyone had such a different and interesting, yeah, approach. It was, it was really beautiful. Like, so I kind of brought everything that I thought could potentially be useful. So we had a bazillion Sharpies and we had stickers and we had uh, some like 1950s clip art and some gargoyles and, and all this, you know, basically my box of art stuff I can't bear to throw away yet. And we spread it out and gave it to everyone. And so, yeah, I mean, we have everything from advice on what to do to reassurance like uh Social anxiety is real and that's okay. You're not alone here. You know, so it's it's all these different points of views mixed with art. And it's just, it's really a beautiful thing that people can download for free. That's right. I will put a link in the show notes. Yeah, that was a really satisfying project. Um, have you, have you found that it's uh, opened up maybe more conversations about con crash in general? I know for me, I've, I've noticed more when people have those conversations and my immediate response is, oh, hey, here's the zine. You should read this because these people wrote this cool stuff. So it's it's built a little bit of connection there, I think. Like I'm more attentive to those conversations and more more empathetic towards the expression of it. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, my goal, honestly, with it was just to get more people thinking about it and more people talking about it. I think it worked. Yeah. As long as we've done that, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
so you've done some work recently for women write about comics. You've been writing for them with them for a while, and you're kind of like their RPG correspondent. I am. What what is your goal in that in that role? What have you hoped to accomplish? Well, it's funny because when I first uh, started talking to them, they were looking for book reviewers and they they enticed me with the offer of free comic books. And I'm like, what? Yes. Gimme. Yeah. <laughs> and then what I found is actually it's this wonderful, strong community of women who are supporting each other because writing about pop culture, particularly comics on the Internet, is not always easy as yeah. I bet is a big shocker. <laughs> so they found out that I played and worked on RPGs and they're immediately like, can you write about that for us? Um, and I have this really wonderful editor, Al, who is so understanding. And basically my goal has been to, you know, our audience is a little different in that we know there may be some women who are gamers who are on the site, but it's also to, to open it up to women who aren't gaming and so one of the things that I do in an article whenever I'm talking about a specific game is I will compare it to comics that they might be reading and be like, this is why you would like this game if you like this comic. And then the other part of it is writing just, you know, personal accounts like I wrote about the first time I went to Metatopia so that they can kind of get that a little bit of an inside feel of what it's like beyond just sitting down with your friends and playing a game. Yeah. No, I think that's really valuable. And I think it's um, kind of hard to get into this hobby unless you have basically close friends who are already into it. It is. So in a way, you're kind of the ambassador for the hobby or, you know, an ambassador for the hobby. You're embarrassing um, me again. That's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> uh, you know, you write, uh, you wrote a, an article about gaming with your family, which was very well-timed over the holidays. <laughs> uh, is there is there kind of an approach or sort of like default game that you pick out when you are going to be around people who you know are not necessarily gamers, but maybe they might be amenable to it? Uh, yeah, that's that's actually interesting and funny. Approximately half of my family are gamers. Uh, so whenever I first started gaming, I actually was gaming with family members. Uh, and the other half of my family are like, what the hell are you all talking about? I don't even, right. I don't even understand. So whenever I approach someone who isn't a gamer, I'm typically going to choose something that is somewhat parallel to their interests. Uh, so like in the article I talked about, my mom uh, manages an ER. Uh, she's been a nurse for years. So I am not subtle and was like, hey, let's play Pandemic. You'll like this. It's about diseases. And she loved it. She totally loved it. That's awesome. I, I then made the poor choice of playing Cards Against Humanity with her and my aunt, and I'm still emotionally surprised. But yeah, I try and find something, some point of familiarity because if you're asking someone to do something that's that's very new to them, like, I want you to pretend to be an elf. That can be really hard to figure out how to do that if you have no t nothing to touch on to be like, okay, this thing is familiar. I'm going to hold on to it. So that's pretty much what I do. That's interesting. And, you know, as someone who works in the game industry, do you have to answer weird questions about what it is you do for a living? Does <laughs> Never come up. <laughs> it totally does. And it, it comes up enough that it's actually a bit of a joke. It's like, what exactly is it you say you do here? Draw <laughs> monster penises for money? What? That's a job? Listen, that's what it says on the business card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have had strangers ask me if I mean sex games. And that always is the one question that, that trips me up. And I will stare at them for a minute before being like, no, How many not that kind games? of role play. <laughs> 
real question is, why aren't people publishing those adventures? <laughs> the market is there. Apparently. Anyway. As I'm starting to design games, it's an easier conversation with my family about what exactly it is I do. But I, at the sex question is probably the weirdest question about what it is I do. I mean, at a certain point, you just say, like, I write and do layout for books. And the question is, wait, books books get laid out? I thought you just, like, type it in Word. And, and then I try not to hit them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I see that's not a fruitful avenue <sighs> of conversation. <laughs> Something like invisible labor. You know? Yeah. Good times. You mentioned earlier an interest in horror, and that's part of what I think uh, attracts you to OSR. Uh, you've been working on a game with Marissa Kelly and Strix called Bluebeard's Bride, correct? Yep. And I'm sure all of our listeners are very familiar with it because they've already listened to uh, the one-shot actual play of it. Yeah, I think the second part is up now. I'm not sure I can listen to it. I totally understand. It took me months to listen to the actual play that I was on, and I wasn't even running it. So anyway, it's a, it's a game of feminine horror based on the fairy tale of the same name. And it's a kind of an apocalypse world hack. Mm -hmm. How did this uh, idea between the three of you kind of coalesce and form? What's the genesis of Bluebeard's Bride? So this is funny. Two years ago at Gen Con, there was a workshop uh, for women only to design games. And I almost didn't go. I was really nervous and afraid and I was like I don't know if I want to do this like why am I why am I even going to go to this I just draw and lay out books mm. but I was like all right let's give this a shot and I went in there and there's you know room full of women who all look kind of nervous and they're looking at each other and I sat down next to a woman who I believe was dressed as an elf makes sense and she was eating a sandwich I kind of look at her I'm like okay <laughs> I love cosplayers doing mundane things I don't know why <laughs> so I do I I, I was like, like Superman in line for the ATM. I don't know. I love it. Sorry, go on. And I don't think she knows this, but there is this this attitude of give no fucks about yeah. the way she was sitting there. That's like, I need to sit next to her. <laughs> so they, they start the workshop and they talk us through it. And they're like, we're going to, to, we want you to pair up and then we will assign you a mentor based on what you're doing. So I look at, at the elf and I'm like, hey, and she's like, hey, let's, let's partner up. So that was Strix. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> nice reveal. It all it all makes sense now. Yes. And we're hanging out in the corner and awkward because I am very awkward. And finally, we're like, hey, so I like fairy tales. And Strix is like, I have a degree in mythology. And I'm like, how is that even a thing you can have? And I want that. And now you're my best friend. And let's talk about this. Yay. And she's like, hey, have you ever heard of a, of a fairy tale called Bluebeard's Bride? And I'm like, I love it is one of my favorites. And so that's how it started. And then Marissa was the person assigned to be our mentor. So uh, you, we went through the workshop and you came up with an idea for the game. And then you had to stand up and pitch it to the entire room. Whoa. And I think there's been like three or four games that came out of that workshop. That's awesome. Yeah. Elsa Henry was there. She had already come up with Dead Scare, but it was, I believe it, it helped her. Uh, and then I know Nicole Winchester and Cheyenne Walgrimes, they made a fate thing based on reality TV. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So so there's actual stuff that's come out of the workshop. That's where Bluebeard's Bride started. So we didn't know each other before that day. <laughs> We're just like, hey, we like fairy tales. We're going to make this horror game about uh, this fairy tale. Wow. That's really cool. So is this your first um, kind of game design work? Yep. 
Holy shit. <laughs> that was a fantastic reaction. <laughs> but I mean, you're supposed to like make a bunch of games and then they don't really work. And then, you know, they're maybe obscurely available somewhere. And then you, then, you know, maybe eventually you can make something good. But it, it's funny because it's a game about a fairy tale and it's a game that's very much about feminine archetypes. And it's made by this trio of women, which any, you know, mythologist can tell you is the most powerful configuration that you can possibly put women in, right? When there's three of us, uh-huh. you know, watch the fuck out. So, um, <laughs> wow, that's, uh, that's terrific. So I played a playtest version of it, oh gosh, maybe a year ago. Is this something that we're going to get to see soon? Is it going to be on Kickstarter? Am I allowed to ask you these questions? You are. And yes. So right now, we had to delay it a little bit, but right now um, we are planning to go to Kickstarter this year. We are uh, still in the production process, but we believe we have uh, finished most of the actual like design mechanic work. And now the, the kind of interesting thing is the game is primarily diceless. That is cool. It actually works so much better with horror because we found that the dice was interfering with like the actual flow of the game. Right. Because if we're like ramping up the horror and suddenly, you know, you get a, a great success, it's like, oh, like it's a <laughs> bit of a letdown for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it helps a little bit with just controlling the the narrative flow. So yeah, it's going to be on Kickstarter. We're planning, I believe, on doing a hardcover book. It's going to be like a beautiful object is one of the goals we're going for. I, I think that's a noble goal. And, um, you know, you look at the success of something like fall of magic, you know, or a lot of, a lot of RPGs that have come out and deliberately not just been like, how quickly can I get this on paper and to people, but like, how can I make this something like truly beautiful and like worth having and worth like kind of treasuring. So this is great. So I assume that you're doing all of the design and like uh, visual design and illustration and layout. Actually, no. Isn't that weird? It feels so weird. It's very interesting. What's what's the thought process there? What, what's behind that? Well, um, so Bluebeard's Bride is going to be put out by Magpie Games, uh, which I have recently become their director of marketing. So it's just like more. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting to work with them a lot more, which is awesome because apparently we work well together. So one of the things that that has been part of this, and like you're saying, you know, it's my first design, which means that. I've been getting a lot of support specifically from Marissa, but also from Magpie on figuring out how to make this work and how, how does design work? I'm figuring that out. And so part of that, the idea was to not let me retreat into my comfortable roles of illustrator and designer, but to make me can just stay in the whole writer seat for the entirety of this project mm -hmm. so that I can also get that experience. Plus, it'll be easier for the other two because they don't have to tell me my design sucks because that could be awkward. <laughs> so there's a particular kind of dynamic that you're trying to preserve in terms of the roles. Yes. You just put that so elegantly. Yes. Uh, we are trying to secure a specific artist. She does amazingly beautiful work. It's so beautiful. So I hope we get her. Uh, and then we're talking to a really, really good designer to do the layout. So... I have faith that uh, it will be a beautiful object by the time we're done. I, I mean, I think I think it's a good game. I, I hope people enjoy it. You know, the fact that it's feminine horror can be a little intimidating, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, let's normalize that shit. Mm -hmm. So do you think that um, 
your first foray into game design going to lead to more of it? Do you, do you see yourself making another game down the road? Or is that like, don't even want to think about that right now? Uh, I've already started. Oh my God, you've got the bug. You've got your, it's hopeless. She's gone. I am. You can't do anything for her now. I, I, I am, I am given over to the design aspect. Yeah. So my second game that I'm currently working on uh, is called Velvet Glove. Uh, I had the first play test at Metatopia this this past year. And uh, in it, you play a teenage girl gang. Wait, you designed Velvet Glove? Yeah. <laughs> My friend play tested at Metatopia. Oh. And I was so jealous that I didn't get in. Oh, really? I, I will. Yeah, yeah. There will be more chances to play it. Yeah, that's my game. Okay, awesome. <laughs> awesome, good. I think that's like, that's such a choice subject. Totally. Uh, what what inspired you to make a game about girl gangs? I am a big fan of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, as you might be able to, awesome. to know from the title of the game. And then stuff like Switchblade Sisters. But really, part of that came from whenever I run Bluebeard's Bride, there's always a point when people are done making their characters where they're like, oh my God, we have this amazing bond between all of us. Like the feedback I was getting is people found making their characters especially fulfilling because it was this feeling of like sisterhood. And so I wanted to make a game about that. And somehow that got translated into, and, and let me be clear, you don't just play a teenage girl in a gang. You play the entire gang. You're like four girls. And each one represents uh, one of your stats and is able to do different things. So you're having to like keep this unruly bunch of girls together and make sure that they don't get hurt by the world while they try and do bad things. Hmm. And so, does, so every player kind of operates a different gang? Yep. Cool. And there's like turf wars and gang fights or is there like yes. cooperation? So far a common theme is one girl will go in the bathroom and another gang will follow her because they want to beat her up in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if your girls get hurt, it affects your stats. And, right. and then you, there are moves so you can have, you know, rumbles with the other gangs. Yay, rumbles. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the gangs themselves are based on um, a little bit of my background. I'm from St. Louis. So the gangs are actually based on the different neighborhoods in St. Louis because it's a very segregated city. So there's a gang that's all uh, African-American girls. There's a gang, they're the South City Rollers, and they're all, you know, retro pinup roller derby, um, stuff like that. Wow, that sounds super cool. Are you familiar with Helen Joe at all? No. She put out a zine that's just a bunch of illustrations of her own imaginary girl gangs with like an imaginary girl map of the South Bay. Let me write down her name. What the hell? Why do I know, not know this? You should totally, totally check it out. It will inspire you. <laughs> so not to terrify you, but I also <sighs> am working on a uh, Dungeon World setting for Magpie. Cool. In which you play in a dungeon that never ends. An endless dungeon. Endless dungeon. That's that's baffling in the most exciting <laughs> way. <laughs> Well, it's it's me trying to bring a little bit of OSR to story games. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the concept is basically there is a prison planet that you can either be oh. sent to as punishment or you can be born there. Wow. And then it's, can you get out of the dungeon? Because it's, it's the whole planet. Like, wow, that's some serious dungeon crawl. 
it's just like a metaphor for criminalization. Jesus, wow, cool. <laughs> I, I do like to, to put a little little social commentary in there. A little bit of a, hey, check this out. <laughs> All right, well, um, it's been super rad talking with you. If people want to keep up with you and where you're at and what you do, uh, is there somewhere you should direct them? The best way to track me is actually probably G+. I go under Sarah... Doombringer Richardson, or you can catch me on Twitter as at Scorcha79, or you can see my artwork on Scorcha.net. Cool. Well, it was super great chatting with you. This is uh, this is awesome. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. We truly did. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really enjoyed talking to you about these things. Totally my pleasure. Thank my you, pleasure. Sarah Richardson, for coming on the show. Heroes, I know we mentioned a lot of different games and people and websites on the show today. There will be links to as much of those as I can find in the show notes. Remember, heroes, I love hearing your thoughts on the show. So if you want to get in touch, you can send an email to backstorypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Google Plus, that's Backstory Podcast, or you can tweet at me at Backstorycast. If you're on iTunes, please consider giving the show a rating or a review. It really helps new folks find the show. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. You can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like One Shot, Campaign, Modifier, and Talking Tabletop. And that smooth, smooth jazz you're hearing now is called Thinking of You by Ujiko. You can find more of their work at soundcloud.com slash Ujiko. Talk to you later, heroes.